Bibles today, I'm going to invite you to open with me to Ephesians chapter 6. Ephesians chapter 6, the verses will also be on the screen. But welcome to week 4 of our Armor of God series where we are walking through this picture of spiritual warfare and the armor that God has given to us. And just remember, we live in a spiritual world and we are in a spiritual war. And this war involves God, it involves angels, it involves Satan and demons and rulers and authorities, and it involves us. Let me just simplify it this way. If you are a child of God, Satan hates you. Satan hates you. He hates you. He hates this church. He wants us individually. He wants us back. We have an enemy, and that enemy is a living intelligent, resourceful, and cunning enemy that can outlive the oldest Christian. He can outwork the busiest Christian. He can outfight the strongest Christian. He can outwit the wisest Christian. All those things on our own. Yet because we are in a spiritual war, God has given us a armor to put on. Armor to wear. Last week we looked at the belt of truth and how truth holds everything together and this morning we come to the breastplate of righteousness and just remember when Paul was writing these words to the church at Ephesus he was not a free man he was in chains imprisoned by Roman authorities therefore as he's writing these words probably in a cell writing to the church at Ephesus he's probably looking around and seeing Roman guards around him coming and going and once a Roman soldier was fitted with the, the belt, he would then put on the breastplate. Now, the breastplate was made of iron or bronze, and of course, it protected the soldier's torso. During Paul's era, the typical Roman legionary wore a protective piece of equipment underneath, a leather sheath underneath the breastplate. And if he was wealthy enough, he would wear a chain of mail over the breastplate just for added protection layers of protection to protect the vital organs mainly the heart and we're going to talk about that a little later but Paul calls it a breastplate of righteousness now the word righteousness has become a religious word that has lost its meaning to way too many people it holds negative connotations for many it brings to mind a holier than thou attitude that some professing Christians have that many despise being right, after all, implies that someone else has to be wrong. Thus, the world tends to treat righteousness with the scorn because the presence of what is right is always a threat to that which is not. So the presence of what is right is always a threat to whatever is not. And even Christians, professing Christians, are confused about what righteousness is or whether we need it or how we receive it. And all of this has basically left our society without a clear understanding of what it takes for us to be righteous and to have a relationship with God. Yet the word righteous, righteousness, all of its counterparts appear 540 times in 520 verses. In contrast, faith or faithfulness or faithful are only used 348 times in 328 verses, meaning that the word righteous or one of its counterparts is mentioned one and a half times more in Scripture than even the word faith. Now, what does that tell you? It should tell you that righteousness seems to be pretty important. And just so we're clear, righteousness means to have a right relationship with 
the Lord. Righteousness means to be right in God's eyes. It means to be in right standing with God. And as we're going to see this morning, there is a righteousness of position and there is a righteousness of practice. And the first, the position has to come before the practice. So let's dive in this morning and hear the calling for us to take up this breastplate of righteousness. If you're able, I'm going to ask you to stand as we honor God's word. We're going to read verse 10 through 14 of Ephesians 6 in which Paul writes these words. And you'll see them on the screen. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day. And having done all to stand firm, stand. Therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth and having put on the breastplate of righteousness. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. Thank you that your word doesn't leave us alone or unaware of the spiritual world in which we live. It does not leave us unaware of what the enemy desires of us. Jesus said the enemy comes to steal, to kill, destroy. But then Jesus, you said that you have come that we may have life and have it more abundantly. So we just pray today that you would just speak to every heart and life in this room and all those watching online. Lord, help us to see the importance of that breastplate of righteousness, how we must be righteous in your sight. And then true righteousness will produce righteous living in our lives. Oh God, just speak, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. And you may be seated. So when we think about the world in which we live, most people don't think that righteousness is maybe an essential ingredient to being a Christian. And most non-Christians, of course, think that righteousness is basically what happens when Christians sort, have sorted their lives out, they've got their lives together, they've lived really, really good lives, and because they live really good lives, they become acceptable to God. For many, a Christian is just a decent, moral person who lives their life the right way. Yet the ultimate question of the Bible is, how can a sinful person be made right before a holy God? How can a sinful person be made right before a holy God? No more important question could ever be asked. And unfortunately, this question doesn't lead many people to delight. Instead, it leads them to a dilemma, especially for those who are trying to earn their way to God. For the road to good works to earn salvation becomes an endless ladder that you climb and climb and climb and climb and climb, and yet you never get anywhere in fact, think of it like this. If you fail to live up to God's perfect standards only one time a day, that would be 365 sins per year and then add one on for leap year, or almost 26,000 sins in the average lifetime. Now, let's be honest. That would be a remarkable accomplishment for most of us in this room if we only sin one time a day. I mean, that would be a, that would be a really good day, like an amazing accomplishment. 
We have all committed sins of commission, meaning we do the things that we know God has told us not to do. We've also committed sins of omission, where we haven't done the things that God has called us to do. Indeed, even when we do right, oftentimes our our motives aren't always pure, and sometimes our motives are entirely selfish in every single way. So spiritually speaking, we deserve the death penalty 26,000 times in our life because we have sinned against a holy God, or we have committed cosmic treason 26,000 times in our lives or more. And most often, our only defense is this, well, I'm trying to do better. I'm trying to do good. That's like a person that has stolen millions of dollars from their their company, standing before the boss and saying, hey, when I wasn't stealing millions of dollars from you, I was trying to work really good for you. I mean, that's not going to get you very far. I mean, at all. Now, we have to acknowledge what each of us deserves before a holy God. I know this isn't popular by any means whatsoever, especially even in the church today, but because of our sin before a holy God, we deserve to be tossed into the fire without so much as a second thought. Our own righteousness cannot protect us from God, and if it won't protect us from God, it definitely won't protect us from the enemies, the spiritual enemy. So the breastplate of righteousness reminds us that we don't produce righteousness within us, that we can't figure things out on our own, that we need a savior and that we are eternally lost without one. We can only stand right before God by wearing the gift of God's forgiveness. As we said last week, the Roman armor would have weighed about 66 pounds, so could have weighed the soldier down, unlike the clunky metal of the Roman armor, the breastplate that we are called to wear does not weigh us down. It makes us light. It lightens our load. In fact, you think about it, even Romans 1.16, we're not ashamed of the gospel. Why? Because the gospel takes away our shame. It doesn't add to it. So it lightens, it lightens us. It gives us joy. It gives us hope. It gives us freedom. It helps us to stand courageously against anything that might be thrown against us. The breastplate of righteousness protects our hearts, and it reminds us daily just how loved we are. So I want to lay before us this morning three amazing and foundational truths about this breastplate that Paul calls us to put on. Number one, the breastplate is a declaration. This breastplate is a declaration. So again, the question, how can a person be right before God? I mean, that's, that's the reality. Understand this. Human beings in their sin become stupid. And in our stupidity, we walk around asking questions such as, well, how can a loving God allow bad things to happen? Now, that's a question we need to wrestle with at times, but that's not the question that the Bible asks. The Bible asks this question. How can an unholy people ever get into the presence of a holy God? That's the question of the Bible. How can an unholy, rotten people ever get into God's presence? We have no righteousness of our own. And maybe you're objecting right now and going, well, I'm a good person. I do good things. We read this week in Isaiah 64, 6, where it says this, all of our righteous deeds are but filthy rags in his presence. All of our righteous deeds. So think about this. 
All the righteous deeds means every good thing that you do is but filthy rags in the presence of God. So if everything good that you do is as filthy rags, what about every bad thing that you do? What must that be like? If your good is filthy rags, just think about how filthy your bad is. So again, how can we be right with God? And the concept of righteousness is mentioned many, many ways in the, in the Bible, in, in scriptures, in several different capacities. I want to lay three before you now, and then one's going to come a little later. We're going to wade right now into some theologically deep waters. I know the second I say that, some of you just turn your brain off and you're done, but press in here, because what we're about to, to share with you will allow us, enable us, empower us as God's people to stand in the midst of the attacks of the enemy. So press in, lean in. So the first type of righteousness mentioned in the Bible is called perfect righteousness. So perfect righteousness. God is perfect, therefore, because God is perfect, he demands what? He demands perfection. Jesus said in Matthew 5, you must be perfect as your Father in heaven is perfect. That's what God demands, perfection. So if Paul was referring to perfection, saying you need to put on the breastplate of perfection, we're all in trouble. Like We're not wearing that breastplate. That breastplate will never, that, that ship has sailed for all of us. As human beings with the spiritual DNA of Adam and Eve coursing through our veins, we are not righteous. We cannot be. Romans 3.23, we read that this, this week. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. All of us. So if God's perfection is what Paul is commanding, there is no breastplate for us. Perfection is an utterly impossible, unreasonable request. And the enemy of our souls, think about this. Even though we know we're not perfect, the enemy of our souls even tempts us in such a way that we end up chasing perfection or perfectionism instead of chasing God. We try to chase good works and doing good things and being better and the, a better person than chasing the Lord. And if we're not careful, this pursuit can become a bottomless pit of idolatry by which we worship all of our good deeds. We worship all the things that we do, our own efforts, yet perfect righteousness by us is unattainable. I hope I don't have to beg you to see that or shake you to see that, how impossible it is for us to be perfect. Now, the second type of righteousness in the scriptures is called comparative righteousness. Comparative righteousness. Now, you can figure this out. Comparison means that we compare ourselves to other people less spiritual, less godly, more sinful than us, so that we feel more righteous. So we said last week, it's always Hitler. I'm better than Hitler. I'm better than him. I'm better than Stalin. You know, as long as I'm better than, than them. Just think about walking outside yesterday morning, seeing your car, filthy, filled, covered with pollen and dirt. And you go, well, I really should wash my car, but I don't want to. So instead of washing your car, you walk around your community until you find a car that has 15 more layers of pollen and dirt than your car does. You take a picture of it, and you walk away convincing yourself your car is now clean. And yet that is how we often live in this comparative sense. Yet comparison is never righteousness. Comparison is never an accurate barometer because we're not measuring ourselves against God's standard. Again, God's standard is perfection. Think about this. If 
all of a sudden, for some reason, I don't know why we would ever do this, but let's just say you and, you and I entered into a race, just me and you, a thousand-mile swim. And here we are swimming. We start, and let's just say, don't know why, don't know how, but we get 100 miles, and all of a sudden, down you go. And I'll, I'll stop for a second, look at you, go, ha, I beat you. And I go for a half a mile longer, down I go. Guess what? I might have beat you in comparison. I'm still dead. I'm still out of the game. I still didn't reach the mark. So comparison, we can look at other people and go, oh, I'm godlier than them. But we still have missed the mark of God's glory. You know, comparison might soothe us, but it deceives us. Deceives us because it's an accurate standard. So the third type of righteousness in Scripture is, this is where it gets a little heavy. It's called imputed or positional righteousness. Meaning, when you put your faith in Jesus Christ, trusting him as your Savior and Lord, he takes your sin and he gives you his righteousness. Because of the cross, our penalty, the penalty of our sin has been taken away. So our sin demanded a payment. Now, Scripture says this, the wages of sin is what? Death. And there has not been, throughout the beginning of history till now, there has not been a reduction in the wages of sin. So the wages of sin is still death. And yet, Jesus paid it all. He paid it all. His death for all of it, if we will receive him by faith. Look at the two verses on the screen. In Genesis 5, even the Old Testament, it tells us that Abraham believed God, so he put his faith in God, and God accounted it to him or credited it to him as righteousness. So Abraham believed. God said, you're righteous. In Romans 3, Paul says this, 20 and 21, but now the righteousness of God has been manifested, has been made known, has been brought to us. How? Through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. Yet here's the beautiful picture, and this is when it gets really good for us. Not only does the cross of Christ and our belief in it take something away, it takes away our sin, but it also adds something to us. It gives us the righteousness of Jesus. Now, one of the ways that the enemy attacks us is to accuse us. And the, the enemy, what he does is he accuses us of the flaws in our lives. I don't know if you know us, but we have many. Like We have many flaws in our lives. There's a lot for the enemy to use against me. So the enemy attacks, and when he, when he attacks, I don't grab my own righteousness and bring my own righteousness out and say, here's me, I'm a good person. That's not my primary defense. In fact, one preacher said this, our righteousness, so ours, at its best, is but as wax before the devil. So if we close our, ourselves in our own righteousness, the devil comes and he begins to breathe fiery accusations against us and all of our righteousness just melts away. So to put on the breastplate is a declaration that I have put my faith in Jesus Christ and because of that, I am forgiven and I have been made righteous. In fact, if you're taking notes, write down 2 Corinthians 5.21. One of the most amazing scriptures on this, on this picture. So 2 Corinthians 5.21, it says this. For our sake, so for you, for me, God 
made him, Jesus, who knew no sin, there was no sin in him, God made Jesus to be sin for us. Jesus literally on the cross became sin. And in becoming sin, he took every last drop of the wrath of God. Now, when Jesus was in the garden praying, saying, take this cup from me, that cup was the wrath of God. Jesus drank every last drop of it and said, it is finished. So God made him who knew no sin to be sin for us, get this, so that we could become the righteousness of God in Jesus. In case you don't know what that means, here's what it means. When you trust Jesus, a trade takes place. He takes your sin and you get his righteousness. It's the worst trade in the history of the world, but praise God, oh, how it benefits us. We get his righteousness. In Christ, we have been pardoned. We have been cleansed. We have had the righteousness of Jesus credited to us, meaning it's no longer about my righteousness. It's about his righteousness. So let me say this, and let me, let me tell you why this matters. So why does it matter that we go to a deep topic like this? Because if Jesus is your Savior, then his righteousness is the breastplate that guards your heart. But it's possible, even if you've trusted in Jesus, to begin to live as if it all depends on you. That you have to make sure your good deeds outweigh your bad deeds. That you have to do this, you have to do that, you have to do something else. And that is a recipe for failure in the Christian life. Listen, we need to remind ourselves every day that we don't stand on the basis of us. We stand on the basis of Jesus. Every single day we stand because the work that Jesus did can't be undone. That's how we stand. His work can't be undone. And when Satan comes after our hearts, and he will, we can stand with courage knowing that the breastplate of Jesus' righteousness can handle any attack that he brings. It can handle any attack. So this is, understand this, when I'm talking about this type of righteousness, God declaring us righteous, this isn't a breastplate that we have to get up and put on every day. Now, this is a once-for-all breastplate that when you trust Jesus, you are clothed in his righteousness. It's an amazing declaration of our God. But yet, there, there's another element of the breastplate of righteousness that we need to consider. Secondly, the breastplate is for protection. So the breastplate's for protection. So think about a suit of armor. And what do you picture? So maybe you picture a knight. Maybe you picture a samurai. Of course, throughout this series, we're picturing a Roman soldier. Maybe you picture in your mind a modern soldier, maybe a member of SWAT, or maybe a police officer wearing their bulletproof vest, whatever it is that you envision. Armor is a very old invention. It has changed throughout the time, but it has basic components and a basic purpose to protect, and mainly to protect vital organs, mainly, again, the heart. So without a breastplate, the soldier would go into battle unprepared, just destined to die. The the story has been told, and it's kind of a longer story, but just follow with me here. This is going to show us something about the protecting aspect of the breastplate of righteousness. The story is told of an elderly man who once lived high above an Austrian village along the eastern slope of the Alps. 
Many years before, the town council had hired this gentleman as the keeper of the spring to maintain the purity of the pools of water in the mountain crevices. So the overflow from these pools ran down the mountainside, fed the lovely spring that flowed throughout the whole village. With faithful, silent regularity, the keeper of the spring patrolled the hills. He removed the leaves, the branches from the pool. He wiped away the silt when it began to build up. Anything that would choke or contaminate the fresh water, he removed. By and by, this village became a popular attraction for, for vacationers. Graceful swans floated along the crystal clear spring. The mill wheels of various businesses turned day and night. Farmlands were naturally irrigated, and the view from restaurants that were built was sparkling. Years passed. Life was good. And one evening, the town council met for its annual meeting. As the council members went over the budget, one, one man's eye caught the salary paid to this obscure keeper of the spring. And he said indignantly, who is this old man? Why do we keep paying him year after year? No one ever sees him. Do we really need him? Therefore, by a unanimous vote, the council dispensed of the old man's services. A couple weeks went by, no change whatsoever, but then came early autumn. The trees began to shed their leaves. Small branches snapped off and fell into the pools, hindering the rushing flow of water in the spring. A few days later, the water was darkened, or, or darkened and kind of became a yellowish-brown tint. A few days after that, darkened even more. Within a week, a slimy film covered section of the water along the banks, and a, a foul odor emanated from the spring the mill wheels moved slowly businesses began to close swans they're gone they took off tourists no longer wanted to visit this nasty village eventually the clammy fingers of disease and sickness reached deeply into the village but here's the question why and here's the answer because the town council didn't think it was important to guard the source of the spring. They didn't think it was important to guard the source of the spring. Now we know from a physical standpoint that our heart is arguably the most vital organ in our whole body. So right now your hearts are doing some amazing things, beating in your chest, dispersing blood throughout your veins, picking up oxygen, other nutrients, supplying to other places, turning into raw energy without your heart beating, bad things begin to happen, and eventually it all goes dark. So we need that. That's from a physical standpoint. Yet from a spiritual standpoint, the heart is the picture of it all. It's a picture of our life. It's a picture of our essence. It's a picture of all that God is working and doing. In fact, in Proverbs 4, it says this, Keep or guard your heart with all vigilance or with all diligence guard your heart is what it says guard it why because from it flow the springs of life from your heart flow the springs of life and if you're not guarding it it will be contaminated if you're not guarding it little diseases will come into our lives and flow out of our lives we need to guard our hearts against the accusations of the enemy, but we also need to guard our hearts because in 1 John 3, listen to what the Apostle John says. 
Not only does Satan accuse us, he says, whenever your heart condemns you. So not only does Satan accuse us, guess what? We condemn ourselves. So all of a sudden, we begin to condemn ourselves. But here's the deal. Let me tell you the difference between us condemning ourselves and God through his spirit convicting us. Condemnation makes us run from God. Conviction of the Holy Spirit makes us run to God. Think about the condemnation and what it does, making us run away from our only hope, making us run away from the one who is giving us his forgiveness. Yet condemnation can well up from the inside, making us feel inadequate, making us feel like we'll never be forgiven. Or little doubts begin to creep in, and all of a sudden that supply line of God's grace begins to get cut off by our own doubt. Oh, that we would understand the reality of what our hearts do. In fact, Spurgeon put it this way. Sometimes our heart condemns us, but in doing so, it gives a wrong verdict. Your heart says guilty. When it does that, we have satisfaction of being able to take the case to a higher court. For God is greater than our hearts. Meaning when our hearts condemn us, we take the case to God. And God says, by your faith in Jesus, you are forgiven. You are cleansed. You are mine. The question for us, are we guarding our heart? Are we guarding it from the thousands of different types of impurities that try to get in? And then we'll inevitably come out. The breastplate is for protection. And number three, the breastplate is for transformation. The breastplate is for transformation. So another capacity of righteousness is what's called practical or imparted righteousness. So let me back up, back to point one. When we put our faith in Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord for salvation, we are declared righteous. We have the righteousness of God given to us. It's called imputed positional righteousness. This is a once-for-all thing. Practical righteousness different in that it is the outworking of the righteousness that you and I have already received through our faith in Christ. It's it's released by the working of God in us, not manufactured by us. And God working within us leads to transformation. And this is a moment-by-moment, day-by-day transformation where we surrender our lives to him. In the words of one theologian, victory begins with the name of Jesus on our lips, but victory is consummated with the nature of Jesus in our hearts. When we become like Jesus, just think about how Scripture defines this transformation. Look on the screen, Proverbs 28.1, the wicked flee when no one pursues. So the wicked, those unrighteous will just flee, many even trying to escape any kind of guilt whatsoever. Listen to the transformation, but the righteous are as bold as a lion. The righteous stand. The righteous don't go anywhere. And think about what Paul says in Romans 13. The night is far gone, the day is at hand. So then let us cast off the work of darkness and put on the armor of light. There's a difference between clothing yourself in darkness and clothing yourself in light. Oh, the difference. This is transformation by which we empowered by the Spirit of God, see the outworking of our salvation. Here's a good question for us this morning. Is there an outworking in your life from the salvation that you profess? 
Have you been changed? Are you being changed? We say this, use this example all the time, but it's like me coming to church today being late. And I go, guys, I was late, got a flat tire, tried to run across the street. As I was running across the street, there was a school bus coming about 40 miles an hour, ran right over me. I was able to get up, dust myself off, and here I am looking just like this. You would, you would go, Micah has lost his ever-loving mind, and he's lying. You would know good and well I didn't get hit by a bus. Why? Because if I got hit by a bus, get this, I would look different. Brothers and sisters, when we have an encounter with Almighty God and he saves us, declares us righteous, and puts his spirit within us, hear this, we will look different. We will look different. There will be a difference in our lives. And there's something that God has called us to. In fact, I'm going to put one more verse on the, the screen. In Philippians 2, 12 and 13, Paul writes these words. Just look at the screen. Paul says this, work out your own salvation. Now, if we just read that, we go, oh, man, it does depend on me. Oh, man, I've got to get to work. Work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Thankfully, Paul continues, and he says this, for it is God who works in you to will to work for his good pleasure meaning this in case you don't know what that means we work out what god is working within we take action knowing we're not trusting in ourselves we're doing what god is doing in our lives god is producing something he's doing something he's transforming us i'm going to end today with two different illustrations first of all it's like a child who comes to their mother and tells their mother they want to bake a cake. So mom gets all the ingredients, gets all the pans. Mom finds the recipe. Mom helps the child make the batter, put it in the pans. Mom shows the child how to turn on the oven, how to place the pans in the oven, how to set the timer. They wait. The child finally pulls out the pans. They let it sit for a while and cool. Then they place it and stack it on top of each other, and the mom helps the, the child take all the icing and put it all over the cake. Now mom is left with two jobs. Clean up the mess the child just made. And then take the child to the bath and clean up the child for the mess that's all over the child. But once the child is clean and dad gets home, the child meets dad at the door, takes dad by the hand, runs dad to the kitchen and says, Daddy, look at the cake I made. Look at the cake I made. Now, in one standpoint, yeah, it's kind of true. The kid did kind of, in essence, make the cake, but not without mama. Not without mama's help. Not without mama's direction. Not without mama doing all of these things. Again, we're only ever working out what God has worked in us. We say, look what I did. Look what we've done. Not without God. Not without his doing. Not without his empowering. In the meantime, God's the one cleaning up the mess we leave behind. We're only ever working out what God has worked within. Now, let me end with this illustration today. I'm, I'm about to be really cool in the eyes of my future son-in-law. So God help me here. This is the type of righteousness that we're talking about today, the difference between Batman and Spider-Man. That should have got an amen. Okay. So Batman, of course, and you, you might disagree with me, Batman, rich, spoiled, strong, has done, done some training, a whole lot of cool gadgets. Now, training I get, but his superpowers stem from his external possessions. 
I mean, he owns it all. Spider-Man has a few accessories here and there, but he's a superhero because of his spidey powers, because of this radioactive spider that changed everything, hear this, within him. Now, all of a sudden, he has a power within that he did not have before. Now, he has to learn what that looks like and how to work that out. But here's the point. As children of God, something alien from outside of us has come to live in us, gives us power, and it changes everything. We now have power we did not have before. We're now becoming like Jesus. In fact, the true definition of a Christian in this world, we are continually becoming. Continually becoming. Putting on the breastplate of righteousness, therefore, is a calling to transformation of life. It's a calling to surrender our lives to his will and to allow him to make us more and more like Jesus. One of the most important things I could tell every single one in this room today is this. The only hope of righteousness we will ever have is through putting our faith in Jesus Christ, what he has already done for us, and receiving his righteousness. And allow him to change us. Listen, if you are here today and you want to experience that, it won't come from you. It won't come from you doing more. It won't come from you trying harder. It won't come from you changing yourself until you're good enough to bring yourself to him. No, you, you come to Jesus and let him change you. You come to Jesus and let him touch you. You come to Jesus and let him change your actions, your desires, your heart. Now, if you're a child of God in this room, here's my question to you. Do you look more like Jesus now than when you first came to Christ? Are you pursuing Jesus? Has transformation taken place in your life, and is it continuing to take place? Are you daily surrendering yourself, picking up this breastplate of righteousness, but surrendering yourself to what God wants to do in your life each and every day? Brothers and sisters, the reality is, there is a gracious God who has done for us what we could never do for ourselves. And he stands waiting to save us, to work in us, to change us for his glory. Where are we at in the process? Where are we at in this process? I'm going to go ahead and ask you to stand, and we're going to call the praise team forward as we enter a time of invitation and consecration where basically we say this, whatever you feel, whatever the Spirit of God is telling you to do today, to do it. We'll have people down front. The altars are open. You can sit right where you are and just contemplate what God is doing. But let's, let's pray together in this moment. Father, we come before you, the God of all righteousness, the one who is altogether holy. And we declare, God, that apart from you, we are unholy. Apart from you, God, we are not able. Apart from you, God, there is no righteousness in us. But through faith in Jesus, what you did for us, meaning you did everything necessary for our salvation. We can have life in your name. We receive your spirit. We're covered and clothed in your righteousness. And you began to work in us to make us more like you. We've been given your Holy Spirit to make us holy. So it's not our job to produce this on our own. It's our job to cooperate with you yield to you, Holy Spirit, to submit ourselves to you. 
I pray today by your spirit's power that you would draw us to yourself. I know that there are some today that are being condemned by their own hearts and wanting just to run away from all of this. Holy Spirit, I ask, God, that you would convict in your love and your gracious power that you would draw people to you. Thank you, oh God. Thank you for what we have in you. In Jesus' name, amen.